Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the, the time to hear from your word. We need you, Father. Uh, we need you to send your spirit to enliven us, to understand what it is that you have for us this morning. Your word is rich. Your word is deep. And, Father, the joy of your salvation is too large to comprehend. And so, Father, would you be gracious to us this morning by your spirit. Show us joy in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys enjoying the snow? Do you get excited for snow still? Good, okay. Good, I do too. I'm excited. I I grew up in southwest Kansas uh, where there isn't much snow. If If you've seen the map, Maine, you know, is up here and, and the West Coast is over here and Southwest Kansas is the part that you've never looked at. <laughs> but all, all towns in Southwest Kansas have one thing in common. Well, they have a few, I guess. Uh, a lot of wind, a lot of dust. But all of them have, for whatever reason, a Wizard of Oz museum. That's a big deal in Kansas. Everyone in Southwest Kansas wants to be known as the town that Dorothy wanted to get away from. I don't know why. But I think that it's because of those museums that I love The Wizard of Oz, one of my favorite movies still to this day. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's a 100 years old. You should see it. But Dorothy, uh, a story of Dorothy, a little girl from Kansas who, after being caught in a tornado, is, is transported from the black and white lands of Kansas, which is accurate, by the way. And to the magical land of Oz, which is in vibrant color. And it's in Oz that she journeys to the Emerald City, uh, meeting some new friends along the way to ask the great and powerful Oz, a wizard and the leader of the land, to send her back home to Kansas. Oz sends her on a convoluted journey to kill the wicked witch of the West to prove her worth so that he might grant that wish. Uh, Well, and so she does. And she returns to the Emerald City, only to find out that the wizard was a fraud all along. He's a small man behind a curtain with a projector and a microphone. He's making promises and claims, but he has no real power to back them up. And as it turns out, he has no real power to send Dorothy home, which is the thing she wanted in the first place. So many things in life end up... That way they promise joy and they end up at best to be imposters attempting to hold our attentions so that we might have a little bit of satisfaction, a little fleeting happiness. Like their own Wizard of Oz, they create a big light and sound show, but they fizzle out when we try to hang the weight of our happiness and our joy on them. If we're not cautious, the gospel can become that way in our life too. Because if you remember that first Christmas morning when the angels came down to the shepherds in the fields, what was it that they promised? They said, fear not, for we bring you good news of great importance. No worth, no good news of great joy, good news of great joy. The promise of Christ is good news of great Joy, and a lot of times we can wander away from that joy and treat it as if it's a wizard behind the curtain that's not really who he says that he is. And in the case of 
Galatians, the book that will be in this morning, Paul is calling the church of Galatia back to the roots of the gospel that will not disappoint. Paul writes to the Galatian church about how they've turned from the thing that was right under their nose and they began to search for something more to find that joy in. Well, if you have a Bible, turn to Galatians chapter 4. We'll be in verses 8 through 20 this morning. And read with me as I read aloud. Formerly, when you did not know God, Paul writes, you were enslaved to those that are by nature not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul is writing to a church that has received gladly the word of the gospel. They've received the joy of the gospel. And then imposters have come in and they have preached a false gospel to them, a gospel that requires them to do a little bit more to be satisfied. And they've turned from the true gospel and sought to find joy in something else. And Paul is calling them to come back to that first joy that they once had. The joy that's in Christ because of his gospel. And in calling them back to the gospel, he's beckoning them by asking them if they're satisfied in what they've now turned to. And in asking them, he's asking us the same question this morning by extension. So I ask you, are you satisfied this morning? Do you feel joyful this Christmas season? Or do you feel more like God is the fake wizard behind the curtain with no real power to bring you that lasting joy that he promised that first Christmas? Paul calls us back to the God of the gospel, reminding us that only in him is there true and lasting joy and satisfaction in this world. So our big idea this morning is that the the gospel is the good news of an unfading joy because it is rooted in God himself. The gospel is the good news of an unfading joy because it is rooted in God himself. In order to see that, we're going to look through our text and we're going to see that the gospel brings us three things. It brings us a pure union to God, a superior enjoyment in God and joy abounding in knowing God. If you have an outline, 
which you do if you have a bulletin. It's on the back side. You can follow along. And let's pull out these three promises that are associated with the gospel as we go. Number one, the gospel promises something pure. The gospel promises something pure. Paul begins by saying, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. The world is a busy place. Do you agree? We're always chasing this or that. And chances are that's not slowing down anytime soon. Hannah and I were locked down in our house for the last few weeks uh, due to COVID. We made it through our quarantine by the grace of God. Nobody killed anybody, which was great. And on the day we finally got out, we decided to go to Bangor and do some Christmas shopping. And we found the stores packed, chaotic, packed to the brim with people trying to get that last minute shopping done. And I don't think any of them realized that we had shopping to do. They didn't seem to care. But the world is chaotic and it's not slowing down. And you recognize that, especially in this Christmas season, it reveals it more than ever. But the gospel comes to fix us on one thing. It centers us. See, it comes to put everything else to death, to put away distractions. It's the simple and uncontested life. Nothing competes with the king. That's what Paul writes. He he writes, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. He's acting as if the gospel is a marriage ceremony. And its product is a union with God, devoted. But as any marriage, you cannot be married to one woman and pursue others, at least not for long. That's called adultery in marriage. And in our union with God, it's called idolatry. Just as adultery is catastrophic to marriage here and now, idolatry is catastrophic to our union with God. See, idolatry is the most significant issue, Paul points out, of our marriage with God. Idolatry is an attempt to bring old flames back into our marriage relationship with God. Paul calls them lowercase gods here, you might notice. Those who you were under, those that are by nature not gods. And for the same reason that your husband would not like you calling up that old boyfriend, wives, you're not to turn back to the gods that you used to serve. That's idolatry. That's the primary roadblock of enjoyment with God, Paul writes. And by the way, that's not a new problem. Consider that in the 23,000 odd verses in the Old Testament, 23,000 verses, idolatry is mentioned explicitly in 9,000 of them. In the 23,000 verses in the Old Testament, idolatry is explicitly mentioned in 9,000 of them. God is so concerned with idolatry in his relationship with his people that it's covered in 40% of the interactions he has with us in the Old Testament. That's shocking. To put that in a positive light, then, David is a king after God's own heart, not because he was without sin, he certainly was not, nor because he did everything right, he certainly did not. But why? Why is he a man after God's own heart? Because he put away idols. No other king handled idols the way that David did. 
And so he was a man after God's heart. That's purity. That's to have a singular focus to be after God's heart. To be pure in devotions. And the gospel promises purity in this way. It is the decisive claim on our lives that the idols that are other gods in our lives have no place here any longer. The gospel has laid a claim on you that you are God's. He's put the marriage ring on your finger. He's claimed you as his own. Excuse me. But Paul is not writing the happily ever after to Galatia as he watches them right off into the sunset. It seems that they have believed the gospel in the past, but now they've turned back to former gods. Why else would he be writing to a church if it were not possible that we do turn back to those former gods in our lives? You know that of yourself, right? Your propensity to do that. After all, the gods that we worship are not statues. They're not carved images. They're not always that clear. So what are these gods that we turn to? Well, there's lots of things that can become idols, that can become false gods, lowercase gods, that compete, that contaminate our marriage with God. Our family can become a false god. Our freedoms can become a false god. Our health can become an idol. Anything that we trust in more than God is by definition an idol that we've put on the throne instead of God. And make no mistake about it, the idols of old are not foolishly obvious things either. The Canaanites in the Old Testament who made sacrifices out of their children to idols did not do so because they saw a statue and believed primitively that it was a god. They wanted prosperity in their life. They believed that their children were in the way of that. That's no different than abortion today. The heart wants what the heart wants when it's corrupt, and it is corrupt. And so we will elevate things to a God, things that we desire at the expense of whatever we think gets in the way. And we do it with everything that we value. Our families are idols when they become our source of joy outside of God. Maybe we leave the church because it might cause conflict within our family. That's an idol that is against purity with God. Our health is an idol when we are willing to disobey God in favor of a little physical comfort. Health can easily become a lowercase God. Or on the flip side, we judge others because they fear for their health that way. That's an idol made out of freedom. Who among us has not been tempted this way or that in this COVID season? But it's idolatry. It's turning back to the former gods and away from the purity of your marriage to God. Where are your gods, Christian? For Galatia, Paul points them back to the law as their God. He reveals that that their false god is a God that's made out of the law as a means to being accepted by God. Paul's saying that we can even treat our relationship to obedience in such a way that it actually becomes an impurity in our relationship with God. 
That obedience becomes the center of our gospel. But Paul wonders, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? <coughs> Excuse me. Like any good husband, God does not want to share his marriage with anyone else. The gospel promises purity. And that's what you get from God. He's purely devoted to you. You receive righteousness from Christ so that you can be accepted as his bride. But it's not meant to stop at that imputed purity, that purity that's applied, that purity that God pronounces on you. God calls you his bride so that you will live as pure, so that you will live devoted to him. That's why Paul writes to the Galatians in astonishment. You must come back to purity. Are you pure in your relationship with God? Is there idolatry that shares a throne with Christ in your heart? So how do we turn from idolatry? How do we become pure before God? See, it's relatively easy to hear these things and make laws just like the Galatian church did so that we can guarantee our obedience, so that we don't do them. But then that just becomes another impurity in our marriage with God. But Paul knows our hearts. He knows our desire to set up false gods. And he gives us the gospel antidote. He reminds us that the gospel doesn't just promise purity. But number two, the gospel promises something superior. The gospel promises something superior. So the gospel is designed to create that singular purity. A focus on God as God. That's pronounced in you. But what causes that to be lived? We'll go back to the text again. Paul continues in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But in 9, he says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, things are different. There's a transition. Paul is saying that the answer to idolatry is not to combat fire with fire. That is, it's not to introduce a competitor that's equal to the idols in your heart. But rather that now we've been offered something superior to those idols. In short, knowing God or being known by God is superior to knowing the law or being known by the law. See, idols, all of them that are in our heart, are a product of a bygone era. They're born out of a libertarian free will. They were the things that you chose because they were the best choice for you to achieve your internal need for satisfaction, for comfort, for righteousness, whatever the thing you felt like you needed in the flesh. They were the thing you turned to. We all have those internal needs. That's proven by our own self-centeredness. We work to our own ends to create and feed idols to that end. We try to become smart to make ourselves feel good. We want to be surrounded by our family because that will make us feel good. Sexual gratification makes me feel good. Perceived peace in relationships can make me feel good. Maybe financial security 
health, career success, even giving can be something that makes me feel good. Those things are neutral in nature, but they can be made into mechanisms for producing an idolatrous lust for something more. Something that is not born of God's will, but born of our own. That desire is an internal need that you're born with because of sin. And you'll work to satisfy it one way or another. We call it being driven, motivated, whatever. We all have those needs. And you have a will that allows you to chase those idols to the extent at which they'll feed your flesh. Your pursuit of these desires is like Pac-Man. You can't stop moving. You have to keep eating, choosing a path to go down, collecting idols to feed your appetite like dots on the path. But you can never get enough because they're empty. In a 2005 interview with 60 Minutes, Tom Brady stated just after his third Super Bowl win, there's got to be something more, he said. He felt like the victories didn't really add up to much. Even if we get the desires of our heart, it seems that there's still not enough. If Brady is still looking for more, you know, the guy that has everything, seemingly, that has money, that has talent, that has adoration, that has family. But you and I won't ever be satisfied with the gods of this world. What hope do we have? But Paul says that the gospel is secure connection of us to God, that is, knowing God, that changes our economy altogether. The gospel pierces the darkness of the idols that we pursue, and it regenerates us to enjoy something superior, namely God himself. The gospel is the good news that you've been pulled away from clambering around in the darkness, trying to feed your appetite for those other things, and it recreates you. Satisfying your most essential need to know God. The gospel means good news because it is the news that Jesus Christ has done everything needed to please God and to satisfy our souls. He's done all of the work and he's applied it to you while simultaneously taking all of your failure all of your ill-conceived attempts and punishing them in his own body. And he leaves you as a dearly loved son of God because of his work. And sonship is superior to the endless slavery of self-gratification. Notice that word in verse 9, now everything is different. Paul says that this should change everything. You will know that you are saved by your transformed appetite for something superior, namely a desire to know God. So why doesn't it seem to be working? Why am I still pulled back to the idols of my heart, you may wonder. As Paul puts it, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? How can you? Are the idols really that good that you keep turning to? 
Is knowing God really that weak? See, when you continue to gravitate toward idols, and you and I both do, it's not the idols that are really in competition with the superiority of knowing God. Paul says that they're weak and worthless. So why? Because Paul is shocked that we're turning back. Well, we turn back because we're deceived in our flesh. Because we believe that they really are better, wrongly. We turn back because idolatry is never sentimental. But our faith in God often is sentimental. See, think about your temptation. Your temptation happens when you lose your job. When the economy is shaky. When society is running in the opposite direction of everything that you believe. When you're diagnosed with cancer. When death occurs. And I want to cling to this life in the midst of all the uncertainty, all the pain. And I want to grab on to the nearest idol to buoy me in such a way that I'll have a little bit of comfort, a little bit of satisfaction. See, our idolatry is never sentimental. Our idolatry always comes in the face of circumstances. But knowing God really is the antidote. See, Paul says that these are uh, desires are running in opposite directions. Knowing God is inversely proportional to knowing idols. And being known by God then is infinitely superior to being known by the law because the law constantly exposes your weakness and woundedness. It leaves you bare and it leaves you vulnerable. You're like a dog with an infected leg. The law keeps gnawing at the wound, causing it to become more and more painful and damaging, but trying to hide it. And without effect, we hide it from infection and parasites that feed off from it. But being known by God is having that wound exposed so that it can be covered and healed by the bandages of Christ. Knowing the law causes you to conceal, but knowing God causes you to heal truly. And going back to idolatry after finding the cure is like ripping off those bandages that heal and exposing our woundedness back to the pain of the world. The gospel must be allowed to heal our pain. We cannot cover it with idolatry. If God is superior, then how do we get rid of the idolatry? What do we do? Well, you don't scrub a wound to heal it any more than you can scrub the idols from your heart. You can't use elbow grease and effort to cleanse your heart. Rather, you apply something that kills the parasites and infections. That means that you remind yourself of the promise until the idol is killed. You starve the parasite of your soul by reminding yourself of what is true in very real and present circumstances. You apply the gospel daily, preaching it into the areas that are exposed with idolatry so that those wounds might be healed. See, when I'm faced with the possibility of illness and potentially terminal cancer, where do I turn? I apply the gospel through 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul writes, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. When I'm anxious about my financial state, when I'm anxious about inflation, I turn to Matthew 6. We've been memorizing it as a church. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We memorize scripture to put it in our hearts so it's available when the woundedness comes back. We put the gospel truth of God's care upon ourselves. When the dark night of depression comes and it will not pass, where do I turn? To a note card in my pocket with Hebrews 13, 5 to 6. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear. What can man do to me? Turn back to the gospel truths. Drive them deep into your heart. Memorize them. Keep them with you. Carry them with you so that when the idolatry is exposed, you can replace it with the gospel. The gospel promises Purity because it promises something superior. But centrally, and as a result, number three on your outline, the gospel promises joy. The gospel promises joy. You know, in the midst of all this talk of idols and purity and the superiority of, of knowing God and all these swirling parts of the gospel, Paul launches into a discourse, which is really a lament as to what's happened to the church in Galatia. He writes, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy? By telling you the truth. Paul is distraught by the way that they've fallen away, forsaken the gospel. The way in which they've turned back to the law. He compares himself in his discourse to a mother delivering a child and the way that he's labored with them and knowing Christ. And he desires to be restored in his relationship with him, not in the flesh, but in commonality in the gospel. And in the midst of all the swirling, In verses 12 to 20, Paul centers in on one question that encapsulates the fruit of the gospel, the core. A product that summarizes the work of the gospel. He writes, what then has become of your blessedness? I like the way that the New Living Translation puts that. Maybe captures a little more familiar language. Where is that joyful and grateful spirit you felt then? 
Where is the joy that you once felt, church? The gospel is freedom to enjoy something superior to the rat race that is life. It it calls us out of the world, out of the flesh, out of the rottenness, out of the, the pain, the struggle, and it places us on something that we were made for. It centers us on the face of God, making him central. And that's significant because that's what your soul was made for. Question one of the Heidelberg Catechism, what is our only hope in life and death? That we're not our own, but we belong to God. That's our only hope. Therefore, that's where our joy is found. Only before the face of God is is one who is fully accepted, fully loved, enjoyed completely will there be joy in this life. Believing the gospel promises joy, fullness of joy, a joy that lasts forever. Now, what is joy anyway? But to be clear, joy is not the opposite of depression, struggle or difficulty in general. Joy is an internal, or I'm sorry, joy is an eternal reality that rests in the truth rather than in circumstances. Joy is not a smile on the face, rather a smile of the soul that knows the same God who has said that he will cause all things to work together for good. It's the same God who is making us to love him and to perfect us in him. Therefore, Joy can be in the face of depression and not be undone by it. Joy can stand in the face of temptation and not be undone by it. Joy can stand in the face of poor circumstances and not be undone. The external does not define the internal. Joy comes in being fixated on restoration to the face of God as a superior blessing of the gospel compared to all others. It's hope in God's work. As the psalmist wrote, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am a mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Joy is the anti-prosperity gospel. See, the prosperity gospel is a, is a false gospel, really. A mechanism to get stuff that I want on the outside. Health, wealth, satisfaction, acceptance in this world. But that abomination of a gospel is ultimately devoid of real and lasting joy because it stands on the external. And it does not believe What God has said is true internally. So Christian, where is your joy? If what I just said is true, joy is found in, if joy is found in anything else at all, it will be fleeting. If it's based upon what you see, it will not last. For Galatia, it was replaced with doing something a little bit more. Trying to add a little bit extra that will give me a little more edge that might make me feel a little more accepted by God. And like a hamster in a wheel, got them nowhere. 
But it did leave them exhausted and disillusioned from that which they first loved. It's so easy to add things to the gospel. So easy to make conditions and add laws that we think will control our outcomes. Things that we think will bring us joy. But we can take the gospel, that joy of our salvation, and we can add something to it. We think that we'll protect what we've found. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more. Christian, what would you give up for your freedom? What would cause you to surrender your joy? Well, whether we choose to or not, we surrender our joy when we think it's up to us to protect it. I think I have to act a certain way so that God will still love me. I think that if God really knew what I was like, he wouldn't love me. Or that he expects me to be this, and I know that I'm really that. So I create a system by which I can change myself so that I can be what I project that God must need me to be so that he can love me. That's why Paul points to the example. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Here's the church trying to observe holy days and external demands of the law to try to please God so that he'll love them a little bit more. What do you try to do to please God? What's your system? Maybe it's giving. Maybe it's church attendance. Maybe it's saying Merry Christmas to everyone. But trying to create those systems to please God ultimately undermines Christ. It diminishes our gospel and robs our joy. It makes the work of Christ very inconsequential. It makes the gospel news, but not good news that it truly is. But Paul points to the external clue that this is happening. The clue is... That it robs your joy. Are you joyful? I mean, really, are you joyful? That's a revealing question. If you're not, maybe it means that you've neglected all that's true in the gospel. Go back to the simple gospel. Knowing God in purity, clinging to his superiority, Trusting in the truth of what Christ has done. Put the promises of God back on. Put away the idols that you're using to satisfy yourself. To defend yourself. To try to make yourself lovable. Come back to the joy of the gospel. There was a son who lived near his father on a very large property that was gifted to him by his father. Daily they would walk together on the land and they would enjoy each other's company. The father would delight in his son as they walked together and the son would enjoy being with his father. Well, one day the father came over to walk with his son, but the son was not there. And the father called out for the son and walked the property searching for him. And when he finally found the son, he discovered that his son had hid from him because he'd done something that the father had specifically asked him not to do. And he was ashamed. The son, Adam, feared that his father, God, would destroy him. 
That's the depths that his shame had led him. So he decided to conceal himself in leaves, to cover his shame, to find acceptance elsewhere. He tried to create a cover for himself. And when the father saw him, he could not deny that the son's image was tainted, that he did deserve to be punished. But the father was gracious. And rather than destroy him, rather than leave him exposed, God chose to cover him with other skins and a promise. He clothed his shame by taking the life of another and giving that life to his son. God has promised to clothe all his children with the skins of another, even the coverings of his own perfect son. God loves his children to such an extent that we have no need of shame. In this life, but simply to come out of hiding and deliver ourselves into the hands of a loving father who will cover our shame with something superior. Garments that are pleasing to him because they are of him. Father, thank you for your gospel, for the superiority of knowing you. We can delight in you, Father. I pray that you would expose the idols of our heart so that we might replace them with your gospel, so that we might walk as sons loved by you. Let us live in light of the reality of who you have called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.